When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send him for me. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was glowing with health, with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of the oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Psalm 13, a psalm of David. Oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you turn and look the other way? How long must I struggle with this anguish in my soul, with this sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemies have the upper hand? Turn and answer me. Answer me! Go, Lord, my God. Restore the sparkle in my eyes or I will die. Do not let my enemies gloat, saying they have defeated me. Do not let them rejoice in my downfall. But I will trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. And I will sing, I will sing, I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. And I 
because he's good to me. You are good. You are good. You are good. And your mercy is forever. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you. It's hard to follow that. <laughs> um, welcome. My name is James. I am the pastor here at Trinity. And we are just kicking off a new series called Legacy. And to start off this series, I wanted to focus on the character of David. David is a very popular character within the Bible. He's one of the most fascinating characters. He was a shepherd, a hunter, a warrior, a general, a king, a poet, an outlaw, a ladies' man, a musician, a worship leader, an adulterer, a murderer, a brother, a husband, a son, a parent, a leader, a hero, and a man after God's own heart. A very complicated character. And I could spend months just focusing on this one Person, and I'm going to try and sum up his entire life in one sermon, which is almost impossible to do. But no character more fully illustrates the moral range of human nature than David. He had moments of incredible victory and deep times of depression and failure, high highs and low lows. And considering his strengths and weaknesses, I thought he would be the perfect person to lead off this series called Legacy. The idea behind this series is to look at a character from the Bible each week, consider their strengths, their weaknesses, how God worked in and through their lives, the challenges that they struggled with, the failures, the successes, and try to learn from their experiences, from their legacy, so that we could apply those lessons to our lives here and now in our day and time so that we might leave a legacy that we would be proud of. One of the things that I've said over the past couple of weeks as I've been preparing for this is that we're all going to leave a legacy. We all leave a legacy. The question is, will that legacy be something that we're proud of? I hope it will. David comes onto the scene during the reign of Saul. And you may remember that Israel was a very unique nation. They were God's chosen people. And so while all the other nations were led by a king, an earthly king, Israel was led by God. So whenever God wanted to communicate with the Israelites or connect with them, he would do so in person. Or he would do it through a prophet, similar to what we experienced through the Jonah series. A prophet would be raised up by God. God would speak through that prophet. That prophet would then go and speak directly to whoever, whomever God wanted to speak to so that the, that person or that nation could hear the words of God. The problem was that Israel looked around them. They saw all these surrounding nations. They all had kings. 
and they wanted to be like them. They wanted to have a king. And so they kept complaining, you know, we want to be led by someone that's tangible, someone that we can see, someone that can represent us well. And so essentially they rejected God. And God said, if you want a king, you can have a king. Go ahead and pick the king that you want to to lead you. Essentially, God was saying, let's see how this works out. So, the Israelites chose Saul. And Saul was an incredibly good-looking man. He was tall. He was strong. He was eloquent. If you were to look at him, you would say, that is a kingly person. All his outward appearance would suggest that he had all the makings of a king. And yet what we come to find is that Saul had some serious flaws on the inside. He lacked integrity. He he struggled to be obedient in, in the most critical times. And ultimately God rejected him because of that. And that's when David comes on the scene. God says to Samuel, the prophet, I have rejected Saul. I have chosen a new king to lead the people. This time God is choosing the person, not the nation. God is choosing. And he says, go to Jesse. I have chosen a king from among his sons. And so Samuel goes to Jesse. Jesse brings all of his sons together, all but one, that is. And as soon as Samuel arrives, he sees Eliam, the oldest, and he is so impressed. Eliam is eloquent, he's tall, he's handsome, all those kingly features from the outside. And Samuel says, surely this is the one. This must be the anointed. But God says to Samuel, be careful. Be careful. Do not consider his appearance or his height. For I have rejected him. Then Samuel met the rest of Jesse's sons. But none of them were the anointed. And so Jesse at this point, or Samuel is kind of confused at this point. He says to Jesse, do you have any other sons? He says, oh yeah, yeah, I've got one more, the youngest. He's out in the field taking care of the sheep. You see how insignificant David was in the eyes of his father and his family? He didn't have any of the qualities that the world would say, yes. Now that is a kingly character right there. But Jesse says, bring him in. Bring him in. And he brought him in and he anointed him the king. Because God said, this is the one. Now, the first quality that we see in David is his spirituality. God told Samuel that David was a man after his own heart. A man after his own heart. Now, what does that mean? It means the things that were important to God were also important to David. His life was aligned with the life and the heart of God. And we'll come to see that that makes a tremendous difference throughout his life. A second quality that we see in David is his humility. Now, some of that was put upon him. 
He's subjected to the lowliest of jobs. He's a shepherd. He's isolated. He's out by himself in the middle of a field taking care of a bunch of sheep. It must have been lonely. It must have been at times discouraging. And yet he did that job with incredible integrity. And it gave him the opportunity to connect with the Lord in ways that most people wouldn't. A lot of solitude, a lot of opportunity to pray, to think about things of God. Which leads to that third quality, integrity. Integrity. Integrity means being complete or whole or sound or unimpaired. It's being the same person that you are in public when all these people are watching as you are in private when no one's around. That's integrity. And most of us struggle with that. Most of us struggle with that. But David had this one down. We live in a world that emphasizes outward appearance, don't we? We live in a world of social media. Think about social media for a minute. You know, one of the reasons why I don't log on to social media very often is because it's discouraging. When you log on to Facebook, what you see is a representation from all these people presenting themselves as if they have everything together. Almost everything that's posted on Facebook is positive. I mean, of course, you get some people that get on there and they're very honest and open. You know who they are. But for the most part, it's, a, it's representing an image of what you would like people to see you as. The way you would like people to see your family. That's what you present out there. But God is much more interested in what's on the inside. And we keep seeing that throughout David's life. Interestingly enough, solitude, servanthood, and faithfulness, those qualities... Integrity, those qualities are the very qualities that equip someone to be a great leader. Humility, the qualities that David had. And David didn't realize it at the time, but the Lord was equipping him, even when he was out there in the pasture, taking care of some sheep. He was equipping him to lead an entire nation. He was building into him kind of leadership that he would need. A second snapshot that we see from David's life comes in the next chapter. And in this chapter, the Holy Spirit leaves Saul. Remember, God had rejected Saul. The Holy Spirit leaves Saul. And a demonic spirit comes and starts to torment Saul. And Saul's having a really challenging time with this. And some of Saul's servants think, what can we possibly do that would help Saul? Maybe something that would calm him down. Maybe if we could find someone that could come and play some nice music for him to soothe, soothe his soul. And so his servants start thinking, well, who, who could we find that has that capacity? And they start talking amongst themselves and guess who they remember. David. When you're out in a field by yourself for a long period of time, you have a lot of time to practice your instrument. David was pretty good on the harp. In fact, the scriptures say this. 
He is a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior. A, he's prudent in speech, a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. That's a pretty good resume. When David showed up at the palace, he had no idea, or at least Saul had no idea, that David had been anointed to be his replacement. And you can bet that David didn't announce it. David was there just to do what he was called to do, which was to play his instrument for Saul and to soothe him, to be a servant. And that's what he did. And he did it so well that everything he put his hand to, he was successful in. Now, a couple of things that we can glean from this part of David's story is that God can move us anywhere he wants us to be, whenever he wants us to be there. God is ultimately in control. Do you see God's hand working throughout this entire story? Keep watching because you're going to keep seeing more of this. And number two... He can use any of our talents, even talents that we have that we look at and we say, what am I going to do with this? I mean, I'm good at this, but I'm not using it in any capacity, so why am I good at this? There may come a day when God will utilize that gift, that talent, to do something phenomenal for his kingdom. God can use anything. A third snapshot of David is probably the one that he's best known for. One of, the, one of the enemies of the Israelites was the Philistines. And they were constantly at war with one another. They were like the two, well, at least two of the superpowers that were around at the time. Constantly at battle, constantly threatening one another. And so Israel goes to war with the Philistines. And David, he's serving double duty. He's working for Saul part-time at the palace. And then he's also spending time at home taking care of the sheep for his dad. His older brothers are all in the military, but David's too young to be in the military. And so he stays home while his brothers go off to war. And Jesse, David's father, starts to get concerned about the well-being of his elder sons. And so he sends David to check on them. He gives them provisions, and he says, take these to uh, their commander and just give me a report on how things are going. So David travels to the, to the scene of the battlefield. And when he gets there, he's blown away because he sees this nine-foot-nine giant of a Philistine by the name of Goliath, who for 40 days has been cursing the God of Israel, making fun of all of the soldiers that are aligned with Saul, and saying, every day, send one of your men to come and fight me. Any one of your men, if you win, all of, all of us will be subject to you. But if I win, you will be subject to to us. And he would come out day after day after day and do this. And all the Israelites were scared to death. Who wouldn't be? This guy is a giant. And even Saul, the king who's there, 
is at a loss for what to do. He doesn't want to fight him. None of his men want to fight him. If they lose, they're all going to be subject to the Philistines. He's in a really difficult place. David shows up. He hears, he hears Goliath uh, cursing his God. And he can't believe it. He says, no one should speak to about our God like this. I'll fight him. So he goes to Saul and he tells Saul, let me deal with this guy. And Saul takes a look at him and he says, well, you can't fight Goliath. Look at you. You're just a, you're just a boy. And David says, well, I may be a boy, but I have been taking care of my father's sheep. And when I take care of my father's sheep, I need to protect them from anything that comes in the way of harm. I've killed a lion. I've killed a bear. And both times, God protected me. And I know that he will protect me when I go up against this Philistine. Saul's looking at him thinking, oh boy, this is not a good idea. But he's got his back up against the wall. 40 days he's been out there. And so he has very few choices. And so he says, all right, I'm going to let you do this. But I'm going to give you my armor. So he takes off his armor, tries to put it on David. It's so heavy he can barely even walk. And David says, I can't use this armor. I need to be me. I need to, I need to do this the way I do things. So he throws off the armor. He takes his sling, which is what he used against the bear and the lion. And he goes out to meet Goliath. As he walks out, Goliath sees him and he just can't believe it. He just starts laughing, making fun at him, cursing him in the name of his gods. And listen to what David says in response to Goliath. You come at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give your, the dead bodies of your, the Philistine army to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. That's some confidence. When you're standing up against a nine-foot-nine giant, that's a lot of confidence right there. So David has something going on internally. Remember, he's filled with the Spirit. David then took the stone from his bag and he slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead and Goliath fell on his face to the ground and David took Goliath's sword and cut off his head and the Philistine army panicked. They all ran in terror and the Israelites pursued them and massacred them. Now here's a few additional things that we can learn from this snapshot. 
David was never intimidated by this giant. He was never intimidated by a giant. How many of you feel intimidated by giants in your life? Yeah, absolutely. We go through this over and over again. Every time a giant shows up, we panic. And yet what God is showing is that you don't have to. David is teaching us something here. He's teaching us that we don't have to live in fear. Because it's not about our strengths. It's not about our abilities. It's about God's strength and his abilities and how he wants to use them through us. That's what God is trying to show us here. Secondly, we see that God uses the little things. You know, Saul was a pretty big man and a pretty accomplished warrior. He could have gone out there and at least done his best against Goliath. But instead, God chooses this this small little teenager just a shepherd, no military experience whatsoever, to come out and show that no mountain is too big. No giant is too big. In 1 Corinthians 1.27, it says, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. You know what that means? If we feel weak, we're in a good position. If we feel weak and we're aligned with God, we're in a great spot. We don't have to be eloquent or strong or handsome. We don't have to be beautiful or brilliant to have the answers. Because God is our answer. We just need to trust God and stand before him with integrity. And he takes it from there. Now the fourth snapshot from David's life shows us how David handled adversity. Over time, Saul invited David to stay in the palace permanently. He really needed someone to soothe him regularly. So David's playing music for Saul on a regular basis. Saul sees that he's really gifted at other things, and so he starts giving him other responsibilities. And before long, David is just racking up success after success because the Holy Spirit is upon him. God is giving him favor in everything that he does. And the people start to take notice. And Saul starts to become jealous. He's jealous of this kid who's gaining popularity and notoriety. And one day, Saul can't take it. He takes his spear and he throws it across the room and tries to kill David. But he misses. The spear sticks right into the wall. And David realizes he has to run for it. He's running for his life. So he skips town, and he loses everything in the process. He lost his wife. He lost this amazing job. He lost his family. He lost his advisors. He lost his best friend. And now he's hiding. He's hiding in a cave by himself. Not really sure what's next. What are you going to do? So David is hiding in this cave with no food. He's trying to figure out what's next. 
And then the Lord starts bringing people to him. All the misfits, people that were in debt, people that were disgruntled, people that were crazy, they're all coming out to David, and they're meeting him in this cave. And David is thinking, what is this? And so David says, well, all these people are coming out to me. Maybe God is doing something. I'm going to teach them and lead them because they're in desperate need of a leader. And so he starts to work in their lives and develop them and to strengthen them. And pretty soon David has this army. All the while, Saul keeps sending people looking for David because he wants to kill him. He sends troops out regularly to try and hunt him down and kill him because Saul is incredibly threatened. Then one day, Saul shows up. He's looking for David among the caves, and he has to relieve himself. So he drops his equipment, and he climbs into one of the caves to relieve himself. And it just so happens to be the exact cave that David is in with his men. They're hiding silently in the back of this cave. And David's men say to David, God has delivered Saul into your hands. Take him. Kill him. This is your chance. Can you imagine being in David's shoes? How would you be feeling? What would you be thinking right then? You've been on the run for years. This guy keeps trying to kill you for no reason. Would you do it? Would you think about it? In 1 Samuel 14, 6, David says, Far be it from me, because of the Lord, that I should do such a thing to the Lord's anointed. You see, David knows that he needs to wait on the Lord to be elevated into that position that God has for him. So he's not going to do it. He's not going to kill him. So instead, he quietly sneaks up behind Saul. He takes his knife and he cuts off a piece of his garment. And when Saul's done with his business and he walks out and he goes back to his troops, David comes out and announces to Saul, take a look at your robe. I could have killed you, but I didn't. I didn't because I've never been after you. You've had it wrong about me. What do we learn from this? This snapshot. Well, are you angry at somebody or a group of people? Is there somebody that when you think about them, you're like, mm, I'd really like to take vengeance upon them? This snapshot is showing us that that's not our job. It's up to God. We also see that we should expect to be mistreated. If we're aligned with God, that doesn't mean we're going to have a very comfortable life and that everything's going to go perfectly. David's anointed. He's a man after God's own heart, and he's living in a cave with someone hunting him every day. Jesus tells us that in this world we will have trouble, but do not fear, for I have overcome the world. Number two, 
We should fight feelings of revenge and resentment or failure with faith. The reason why David didn't take matters into his own hands is because he knew the Lord. And he knew what the Lord would want him to do. And so he acted accordingly. And number three, we learn that we should never listen to anyone that indulges our desire for vengeance. David's men were saying, come on, David. The Lord has handed him to you. So I would encourage you to, to, to ask the Lord to reveal an area of your life where you need to listen to him instead of conventional wisdom or the wisdom of your friends that may think they have good answers for you. A lot of times, well-meaning people will give us advice that is not at all aligned with the, the heart of the Lord. So we need to be wary of that. Soon after that, David finds out that Saul has been killed. Saul goes into battle with his sons. Again, it's the Philistines. Saul is killed and his sons. After eight years on the run, David gets this news. And then he makes his way to Hebron after praying to the Lord. Hebron is in uh, the southern kingdom. Remember, Israel is divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Ten tribes occupy the north. Two tribes occupy the south. David goes into Hebron, the south, and he ultimately becomes king there. So David's king, but only of the southern kingdom for several years. Seven years he's king of the southern kingdom. I think what I learned from this passage or this part is that even when God calls us to something and promises us something, his timing is often very different from ours. See all this waiting, this preparation that David's having to go through? Frequently we go through seasons like that as well. The fifth snapshot is perhaps the second most memorable of David's life. And I shared part of this story at the Ash Wednesday service the other day. David, at this point, has become king of all of Israel. He's been king for about 20 years now. He's around 50 years old. He's had success after success after success. He's never lost a military campaign. He's expanded the boundaries of Israel tremendously. But he's becoming kind of complacent. Have you ever noticed that when you always win, it's not fun anymore? So he's starting just to be like, is there anything more? He's becoming complacent. And in 2 Samuel 11.1, 1, it says, In the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. This verse reveals that trouble is lurking. This verse reveals that David is not where he's supposed to be. The writer writes it right into the passage. He says, in the spring, when the kings are off to war, where is David? He's at home. And he's bored. And when you find yourself feeling complacent and bored and in a place where you're not supposed to be, bad things happen. 
right? That's usually when it happens. How many of you grew up with a curfew? Your parents gave you a curfew. When you went out at night, you had to be home at a certain time. When I was growing up, our curfew, our curfew was 12.30, which actually I think is quite liberal now that I look back. But at the time, I was thinking, 12.30, you know, my, Dad, Mom, why do I have to be home at 12.30? Why 12.30? And my parents would always respond the same way. They would say, because nothing good happens after 12.30. Did you ever hear that? Looking back, I realized they were right. <laughs> Almost all the trouble that I got into happened when I broke curfew and stayed out beyond that 12.30 hour. David wasn't where he was supposed to be. And so he's home alone while the king, well, kings are off to war and his military is out. And he's sleeping in and getting up, wondering what to do with himself. And one day he decides, well, maybe I'll go up on the roof, look around, survey the amazing city, the capital, all that I've accomplished in expansion. And as he's looking out, he looks down at a neighboring building. He can see the roof below, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. And right away he's captivated. He could have turned away, She's beautiful. Maybe he did turn away. Maybe he took a few steps. And then he turned around and went back to watch some more. Was that a good idea? Probably not. You think he knew it wasn't a good idea? Probably. You know, when, when we are tempted, Scripture tells us that we should turn away to flee from temptation. And if we turn away from temptation, the enemy will flee. But if we don't, we're giving the enemy a foothold. We're basically inviting him in. We always need to turn away when we're tempted and pray. David didn't do that. And to make a long story short, he invited Bathsheba, was her name. He found out that she was that her name was Bathsheba, that she was married to a man by the name of Uriah who was in his military. And in spite of knowing all of that, he invited her up. They spent the night together. She got pregnant. And now David has a problem. Because Uriah is off where he's supposed to be. He's fighting. He's in the military. And so David says, oh my gosh, what am I going to do to cover this up? So he sends word to Uriah and has him brought home. And his hope is that Uriah will spend a few days at home with his wife. And Uriah will assume that the baby is his. But when Uriah gets home, the only thing he can think about is his troops that are in battle. And so he refuses even to enter his house. He sleeps on the doorstep and he doesn't spend any time with his wife. And so when David finds out about this, he realizes, well, that's not going to work. So he sends word to the commander to take Uriah to the front lines and have him fight there and then to have his men withdraw from him so that he's by himself, so that he'll be killed. 
And that's what happens. So Uriah is killed, actually murdered by David. And then David marries Bathsheba. Not a great season in David's life. Not a great season. Some time goes by and David is probably thinking, you know, I probably got away from, I got away with this. Maybe he's trying to just put it behind him. But then Nathan, a prophet, shows up. And Nathan comes to David and he says, I want to talk with you about something, David. I want to talk with you about a crime that's taken place. And then he says, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, it drank from his cup, it even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come. Instead, he took that ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David was thinking, Nathan's asking me for advice. He wants me to weigh in on what the verdict should be. He doesn't have any idea that it's about him. And so David says in his kingly voice, that man deserves to die. That man deserves to die. And Nathan looks at David and says, David, you're the man. You're the man. Now, David could have done a lot of things in that moment. Have you ever noticed that when you start to sin, it starts to snowball? David could have had Nathan killed right then, or he could have sworn him to silence. But instead, David decides to do the right thing. He repents. He writes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot away my transgressions, wash me from iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin are always before me. David took ownership of his sin and he confessed, and what that did is it brought him into alignment with God once again. David was involved in all sorts of public pursuits. He was incredibly victorious when it came to expanding territory. But in the process of his military campaigns and his kingly duties, he really neglected his children. This was another big mistake that David made. And it's really clear in the scriptures. One son, Amnon, killed, uh, raped his half-sister, Tamar. Another son, Absalom, then out of revenge, killed Amnon. And then later took the throne from David for a season, drove David out, had a successful coup going, only he was killed in the process, that is Absalom. And so David was able to return to the kingdom. His legacy was one of incredible victories, but we see that in those seasons where he was disobedient 
and where he was neglectful of the things that God had for him to do. There were lasting consequences. God forgave David when he was responsive and and confessed his sins, but the consequences remained. And that's the nasty thing about sin in our lives. From David's life, we learn that it is possible to have a really great start. A strong start, but then a few bad choices can undermine a person's legacy. And we learn that we not only hurt ourselves, but we hurt the people that follow us, and we hurt our families, and we hurt everyone. There are repercussions. So we need to be on guard against sin and stay close to God to ensure that that we experience his best. Now, through the Psalms, we learn that repentance and humility will go a long way in restoring our relationship with the Lord. In those seasons, we find ourselves feeling far from God and complacent. We need to turn to him and pray. But remember that in spite of David's failures, he was the only person in Scripture that is referred to as a man after God's own heart. Now I want to end with this. Why do you suppose that David was the only person who was considered a man after God's own heart? Years ago, in my first year of seminary, I had the opportunity to join a men's Bible study. At the first church that I served in, I was the youth director. Tiny little church, maybe eight kids. And there was a men's Bible study. So I went to the men's Bible study, and they were old men. The youngest guy was 85. There were six guys. The oldest one was like 98. And I remember his name was John. And I, when I walked in the room, I thought, should I stay here? <laughs> you know, and I thought, well, why not? You know, so I sat down with these old men, and they were studying the life of David. And John, the oldest guy, 98 years old, turned to me and he said, James, why do you suppose David was considered a man after God's own heart? And I said, you know, John, I have a lot of theories. I've thought about this for a long time, but I'm not really sure. And he said, you know what, I've thought about it for more than 90 years. And I think I have the answer. He said, when David fell, he always fell forward. He said, whenever David was confronted with sin, he didn't do what most of us do. He didn't run and hide. He didn't make excuses. He didn't deny it. He accepted it. He repented. And he realigned himself with God. He fell forward. And I think because he was willing to do that time and time again, God considered him to be a man after God's own heart. And he ended up with an incredibly rich legacy. I never forgot that. I want all of us to have a rich legacy. 
a legacy that we can be proud of. And so what I would ask for you to do is to think about the life lessons that we can learn from David. And when we fall, just like David did, that we would fall forward, that we would turn quickly to God and remember who we are in Christ, that all those things have been paid for, and that we can stand victoriously in the face of giants. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for giving us an incredible example like David, an incredibly transparent example, Lord. Thanks for not sparing us from the details of his shortcomings. Lord, we learn from those too, perhaps even more. Lord, help us to, to see that in the times when he was obedient, you were so faithful to him and you will be for us too. Help us to stand victoriously and help us to leave a legacy that we will be proud of in the name of Jesus. Amen. The next thing we're going to, to transition into is our benevolence offering. And once a month, actually once every two months, I believe it is, once every two months, um, we take a special offering for those in our community.